someone has defined godliness as an inward attitude of reverence for God that prompts us to strive and please him in all that we do and say. Godliness, an inward attitude of reverence for God with the goal, with the aim that we would please God in all that we would do and also say. In the pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, this virtue of godliness is highlighted, is stressed. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, verses that I've referred to on more than one occasion, Paul writes these words to his spiritual son, Timothy, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul lets his spiritual son Timothy know the importance of godliness, that godliness is not only of value in the present life, but godliness is of value in the future life when a person who's a child of God appears before the judgment seat of Christ. In order for us to be godly, Paul tells Timothy that we have to discipline ourselves, that we have to put ourselves in a spiritual training program. We have to go into God's gym so that we can be godly. And so Paul, in these three books, highlights godliness. All Christians are to be godly. Mothers are to be godly. And praise God that when we come to our Bibles, that there are godly mothers. There are examples of mothers who are godly. There's Sarah in the Old Testament. There's Mary in the New Testament, the mother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But today, I want us to consider a mother from the Old Testament. I want us to consider Hannah. And I'm referring to Hannah as a godly mother. And I want the mothers to be encouraged by this message, but also I want all of us to be encouraged by the godliness of Hannah. Please don't think that the message is only for mothers. It's for women. It's for men. Husbands, uh, you need to be praying for your wife that she would be a godly woman. And if God allows her to be a godly mother. Church family, we should be praying for the mothers in our church that they indeed will be godly, not according to our definition, but according to the word of God. And so I trust that this message will be an encouragement to each of us with regards to Hannah, the godly mother. Praise God for good mothers, and thank God even for mothers who aren't so good that God has used in his own way to benefit our lives. So I want to tell you, initially just the story of Hannah. And I realize that many of you know about Hannah because you might have attended Sunday school when you were a child a long time ago. But let me quickly try to tell you the story of Hannah. I want you, first of all, to notice Hannah's husband in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The chapter begins in an interesting way Instead of mentioning a person's name, it says there was a certain man. The only other time that expression is used is really with the birth of Samson in the book of Judges. So there was a certain man. And before they tell us who this certain man actually is, it tells us his city of origin, his birthplace. And his birthplace is one of those names that you never want to have to read, Ramathain, Zophim. Uh, it's also known as Ramah. I don't know why they don't use the short version, 
as it is used in verse 19, here in verse, uh, verse 1, but it also talks about the fact of his name. His name was Elkanah. Elkanah. And Elkanah, genealogy, his ancestry is given. It's kind of, today, it's very popular. People go to Ancestry.com to try to find out who's your mother, who's your father, and go back and back and back and back. Well, when it comes to this man, his genealogy is given. All the way from his father to his great, great grandfather. It also tells us something interesting about this man. It tells us what tribe he's from, even though it says Ephraimite, it's probably that he was from the tribe of Levi, but he was not of the Aaronic priesthood. That is, he didn't serve in the tabernacle as a priest. But the, things that, the thing that stands out about this man is given in verse number two. And he had two wives. Amen or not? <laughs> he had two wives. One wife was not enough. And the two wives, their names are given Hannah and Peninnah. Two wives. And when you think about that, it goes on to talk about his children. And his children, Peninnah, she had multiple kids. It doesn't tell us how many. It just says that she had sons and daughters. So she had at least four kids. But when it comes to Hannah, whose name means grace, Hannah had no kids. So here's this family, this man who's married to two women. One woman has kids. The other one does not have kids. And I want you to know probably what happened in this family is that Elkanah married Hannah first. And after being married to Hannah, she was not able to have children. And so he married a second wife. And the second wife was fertile. She could have kid after kid after kid after kid. And we can't run from the reality that this man was a polygamist. That this man had more than one wife. And even though when you look at the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you'll find scriptures where God makes allowances for an individual man who has more than one wife. But that was never, ever God's intention. So men, I hope you understand God is not saying to you, you need to have more than one wife. God's plan is very clear from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to who? To his wife, not his wives. God's ideal, God's plan for marriage was always between one man and one woman. God's plan for marriage was also one husband, one wife. But I don't want you to look down on this man. I don't want you to look down on Hannah's husband. I don't want you to think he's a pagan. I don't, think, I don't want you to think that he's trying to uh, run away from God and not live for God. This was a religious man. This was a man who was devoted to God, even though he failed in this area of having two wives. Uh, I, I need to remind you, there's some godly individuals in the Old Testament who had more than one wife. Do I need to mention Jacob? Do I need to mention David? Do I need to mention Solomon and the tons of wives he had? So this individual, even though it did not please God, it was allowed. And this was a man who otherwise was devoted to God. You find him in our text going up to worship God consistently and faithfully. He didn't miss a Lord's Day. He was faithful in his worship. He didn't find something else to do. He worshiped God and sacrificed to the true and living God. And so this is Hannah's husband. But there's one other thing about Hannah's husband that 
is kind of unusual. It really doesn't mention him at all. But at the end of verse 3, it says that there were two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests to the Lord there. After saying that this man would go up yearly to Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle was, he would go up there over and over again based upon the regulations of the Old Testament. Males were required to go up three times a year. So Elkanah did that. But the mentioning of Eli and his two sons are really unusual because it has nothing really to do with this man, but it has all to do with the condition in which he lived. The mention of these two priests who were ungodly priests who took advantage of the sacrifices that people brought to the tabernacle and used those sacrifices for their own personal gain. And not only that, they were sleeping with the women who served in the tabernacle. And God puts them to death. And so why are they mentioned here? They're mentioned here to remind the reader that the times in which Elkanah lived were spiritually low times. There were times that were a mess spiritually. And the book of Judges really captures the time in which Hannah lived and her husband lived. And when you read the end of the book of Judges, it says every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the people lived, the people of God. They did what was right in their own eyes. They, they didn't care about what the word of God has to say. Their concern was what is right in their own eyes. So it was a spiritually low, low period in which Hannah's husband and his two wives lived. It was low. That's Hannah's husband. But the next thing I want you to see in verses 4 through 8 is Hannah's problem. In verse 2, it had mentioned that Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. That, that's their problem. She had no children. And the text tells us why she had no children. It wasn't because she was evil. It wasn't because she was wicked. It wasn't because she had done something in the past. The text tells us twice in verse 5 and verse 6 that the Lord had closed her womb. And we need to take note of that. The Lord had closed her womb. There was not anything medically wrong with Hannah. There was not anything medically wrong with Elkanah. The Lord in his sovereignty, in his control, had made the decision to have Hannah's womb closed so that she could not have any children. And we need to understand that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God has a right over our life. And we might think we can do what we want to do. And even as they did in the time of the judges, do what's right in our own eyes. We need to understand that there is a sovereign God who's in control and who has control even down to the detail of whether there will be life or not, whether there will be conception or not. So that was, quote, Hannah's problem. She wanted children, but she was not able to have children because the Lord had closed her womb. So she had a problem. And that problem manifested itself during the time of worship. If you look at verse uh, 4, it says, And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, that is, he would go up to Shiloh and provide sacrifices. 
And when he provided those sacrifices, he would give sacrifices to Peninnah and all her children. But when it came to Hannah, he gave a double portion. And the text says that he loved Hannah. It says at the end of verse number Excuse me. Yeah, that he loved Hannah, and because of that, he gave her double portions. So he gave her a double portion, according to verse 5, because he loved her. And I want to suggest to us and point out to us that polygamy is never the way to go. Not only is it a violation of God's ideal for a husband and a wife, bringing a third partner into the marriage is never, ever what God wants. And polygamy will always cause problems. And we see that in the fact that when Hannah and the other wife are described, they're described not as fellow wives. They're described as rivals. They're described as enemies. And and this really showed itself on this special occasion when once a year the whole family would go to Shiloh and worship God. And as they would go and worship God, Elkanah made sure that it is clear that he loved Hannah way more than he loved his other wife. That's how he handled the situation. That's how he handled the problem. Here was uh, his wife who had no children. She was barren. Her womb was closed. How did he handle it? He handled it by showing the fact that he loved her. He gave her a double portion. But Peninnah, the other wife, she handled it a different way. When they would go on these yearly trips to worship and to sacrifice, she would use that occasion to point out to Hannah, you got no kids. You're barren. The the text says in verse 6 that she would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. She she made sure that Hannah felt terrible about not having kids. And and, and you know how it can be when you're rivals, when when you're enemies, when you don't like each other. It it wasn't Hannah's issue. It was Peninnah. She would remind Hannah and mock Hannah and provoke Hannah with regards to having no children. And I don't know exactly what it looked like, but maybe she had all the kids playing merry-go-round and and forming a circle around Hannah so that Hannah saw each one and would have to count, oh, there's one, two, three, four. But every time she would look at herself, no children. And so she would be provoked into irritation, and even bitterness. So that the text says that she would not eat. She would not eat. And also, she wept. So just imagine the picture. Here's a woman who wants to have children. But the Lord has closed her womb. She doesn't know that. She just knows she can't have children. And she's reminded by her rival, by her enemy, that her enemy, a rival, has all these kids, but she has none. And her rival will not let her forget it. And she used the opportune time, the time of worship, when the whole family would get together, so to speak. And it was at the time of worship when the focus should have been on God. Here was Peninnah reminding Hannah, you got no children. Look at all my beautiful children. Look at my sons. Look at my daughters. Don't you wish you had some kids, Hannah? Hannah, don't don't you want a child? And Hannah would break down. And she would cry. And she would not be able to. To eat. And Elkanah responded. He wasn't too 
He's trying to be sensitive, but you know how it is, men. Uh, Sometimes when our wives are going through some issues, going through some real challenging times, we try to be sympathetic. We try to be understanding. And this man tried to be that. And so it says at the end, in verse 8, that her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad or bitter? He, he raised his, why? What's the reason for this? And he even had the audacity to say, am I not better than ten sons? You're weeping over the fact that you are childless. You have me, baby. I'm better than ten sons. And you notice Hannah didn't respond. She didn't respond. So that's where she's at. She's got a problem. She has no children. And so what does she do? She prays. And may I suggest that what is the same thing we should do? Pray. But when we have problems, take them to the Lord. And so when you look at verses 9 through 18, we have Hannah's prayer. We've seen her husband. We've seen her problem. But now we have her prayer. And notice the occasion. It says in verse 9, then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. So here they are at the place of worship, the place of sacrifices. And, and here is Hannah once again being ridiculed and mocked and it made irritable because of her rival wife, Penina. And so what did she do? She rose up after eating and drinking and decided that she was going to go to the temple. That is, she was going to go to the place where, quote, God was. And she was going to cry out to God in prayer. And I want you to see the kind of the context of her prayer. It says that she was greatly distressed, bitterness of soul. She was bitter. We can't sugarcoat this. Hannah became bitter over what she had experienced at the hands of Panina and what she had experienced, quote, at the hands of God. That her womb was closed. And so she prayed and she wept. And she wept and she prayed. And she prayed and she wept and she wept and she prayed. She cried out to her God with regards to her circumstances, with regards to her situation. And as she prayed, she made a vow. She made a vow in verses 11 and 12. Look at her vow. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me. That's really what she wanted from God. God, remember me. And God, if you will look upon me, and God, if you will remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. That's how she responded. That was her prayer. And in her prayer, among other things, she made a vow. And from an Old Testament perspective, a vow is not sinful. A vow is not wrong. But a vow was something that God held you accountable for. In the New Testament, we don't have any place where it encourages us to make vows. And please don't misunderstand Hannah here. She's not bargaining with God. She's not saying, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. She's expressing her heart. She's letting God know what's going on on the inside. As she's greatly distressed, as she's bitter, she's saying, God, I want a son. She was very particular. She didn't say, I want a child. She said, I want a son. And God, if you give me this son, I will give him back to you. And we'll talk more about that 
a little bit later. But while she's at the tabernacle on the outside praying, a woman, not a priest, not a man, but a woman crying out to God. That lets us know that even in the Old Testament, people could have one-on-one conversations with God. And she is crying out to God. She's pouring out her heart to God. And Eli, the, the, the high priest, so to speak, the pastor, he's observing Hannah. And he mistakes what's going on in Hannah's life. Eli basically said, Hannah, you're drunk. He thought Hannah was drunk. Why? Because she was praying in her heart. And her mouth was moving. But no words were coming out. There are times in our life that the situation and the demands of life are hard and difficult. And we're praying in our heart. Our lips are moving, but no words are coming out at all. But God is able to hear not just the words that come out of your mouth, but he's able to hear the words that you are speaking in your heart. And so here was this woman being mistaken for a drunk, which again lets us know what's going on at this time in the life of Hannah and her husband. Eli's not shocked to find a drunk woman at the tabernacle? He should have been. I mean, I would hope that if a drunk man or woman walked into this congregation, that we would all be shocked. Uh, we, we wouldn't say, oh, that, that's normal. Now quit your drinking. Come on in and let's worship. We wouldn't say that at all. But Eli says, you're drunk. You need to get yourself together. He, he said to her that you should stop drinking. Good advice for drunk people. Stop drinking. But Hannah says, Eli, you got it all wrong. I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out my soul to God. I'm taking my prayer, my need to God, and I'm crying out to him. I'm not like one of these worthless individuals. And the Bible talks about individuals who are worthless, being a son or a daughter of Beliah. In fact, Eli's two sons are referred to as worthless men. Hannah said, I'm not a worthless person. I'm not drunk. I am crying out to God in prayer. I'm speaking to him in my heart. And even though my lips are moving and you don't hear anything, Eli, I want you to know God hears me. And so Eli stands corrected. The pastor stands corrected. He misread it. And once he heard the words of Hannah, he gave a benediction. He said, go on your way. May the Lord be gracious to you and kind to you. This was not an indication that Hannah's prayer was going to be answered the way that she wanted to. Please don't misunderstand this. She took her problem to the Lord. But it doesn't mean that the Lord answered the prayer the way that she wanted to. When you come to verse 18, we read these marvelous words. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You see, that's what prayer will do in your life. When you have problems in your life, take it to the Lord in prayer. When you're sad, when you can't eat, can't drink, and your heart is overloaded and you're pouring out your heart to God, that's what you are to do. That's what I am to do. But because she took her prayers to the Lord, when it was all said and done, she she left the tabernacle and she ate. She, She left the tabernacle 
and her face was no longer sad. Isn't that why the Bible tells us to cast our cares upon the Lord? For he cares for you. Isn't that why Paul says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And if you do that, the peace of God will guard your hearts and protect your hearts. Hannah began the prayer greatly distressed. Hannah began the prayer not able to eat, downcast, but she ends after explaining herself to Eli, after he gives her a benediction, she ends the prayer, the text says, by walking away and her face no longer being sad. When we come to verses 19 through 20, we have Hannah's blessing. She asked for a son. God gave her a son. And that's God's sovereign choice. It's not because she bartered for a son. It's not because she pledged. It's because God in his sovereignty gave her a son. And so the text says in verse 19 that her and the family got up. And then they worshiped. And then they returned home. They left Shiloh and returned home to Ramah. And as they went back home, Santa, uh, Hannah, even though she didn't have any children, didn't say to her husband, well, you don't get no sex from me. I may not even produce any children, so why are we having sex? You're having sex because it's a part of the marital relationship. A false theology that grew up in the early church, so to speak, is that you have sex for purposes of having children. No, that's not God's only purpose of sex in the marriage relationship. And so Hannah and her husband, they maintain their sexual relationships. And guess what? God knew what they were doing. God was pleased with what was going on. God did not frown at all. But instead, the Bible says God remembered. That's what Hannah had wanted, wanted God to remember her. And, and God remembered her. And in light of that sexual relationship, a child was conceived and a son was born. And she named her son Samuel because she had asked from the Lord. God blessed her with a son. And we need to understand that any time a child is born, it is a blessing from the Lord. The last thing that I want you to see with regards to this story is Hannah's obedience. Hannah made a vow. Was she going to fulfill the vow? Or was she going to do what sometimes we do? We bargain with God. God, if you give me the right husband, or if you give me the right wife, or if you give me that job promotion, that I'm going to serve you, I'm going to live you, and we know we're lying through our teeth. And we don't honor no, the vow or the request. Hannah, was she going to honor her vow? She says, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And that's exactly what she did. The vow. The obedience to the vow was complicated because Samuel, the newborn infant, had not been weaned. And so she didn't go up for a couple years to the place of worship, to Shiloh. And she told her husband, I, I can't go with you. I, I can't present my child to the Lord until he is weaned. That is, part of the weaning process was nursing. And I know some of you mothers are saying, no way in the world am I going to be nursing a two- or three-year-old, that big horse sitting on my lap. But that was their culture. And you, you, you have to look at it. This is not something that is prescribed for today, saying to you, if you have a baby, nurse your child till two or three years old. You have to understand the culture in which this was taking place. The water 
was impure water, so it was often mixed with wine. And so many times when people drunk water, it was water and wine. And if you drunk too much, you're going to get drunk. You surely don't want your two-year-old, your three-year-old walking around drunk. They had no special formula. Couldn't go down to CVS or Roust and get formula. The milk would sour. And so what did a mother do in the ancient Near East? A mother would wean her child until he or she was two or three years old. And that's complicated. Hannah's obedience, the fulfillment of her vow. She could not do it right away. And she was biblically justified in delaying that. She had to wean her child. But it wasn't just nursing the child. But she was a good, godly mother. She would probably pray with the child, talk with the child, instruct the child, just like they often do in the nursery here at Fairview. It's not just being the crib or play with toy, but teaching the word of God. But the time came where the child was weaned and was taken to the tabernacle in Shiloh. And when she went up, she went up with a large sacrifice. She made the sacrifice. Then after the sacrifice, she gave a testimony. She found Eli. Remember Eli, the one who thought she was drunk when she was praying? And so she testified to Eli and said in verse 26, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. In verse 28, so I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he, the husband, Hannah, Worship the Lord there. But in dedicating the Lord, she said, Lord, here's your son. Here's your servant. So that's Hannah's obedience. We could go on and talk about our song in chapter 2, but I won't. Let me tell you the significance of Hannah as a godly mother. You've heard her story. But there's some valuable lessons. First of all, a godly mother is gracious in her personal relationships. A godly mother is gracious in her personal relationships. Hannah was provoked to irritation by Peninnah. Year after year after year. She she made it a point, Peninnah, to agitate Hannah to the point that Hannah couldn't eat or drink, to the point that Hannah became bitter in her heart. How did Hannah respond? I know how we would respond. We probably would have went upside Peninnah's head. You going to mess with me? Let's get it on. Let's fight. Maybe she could have responded by cursing Peninnah out. Yeah, you got all these children, but I got the husband. He loves me twice as much as he loves you. But she responded graciously. You don't see her running around, slamming or cutting down Panina, her rival. She responded graciously. She took her problem to the Lord instead of taking it to everybody else in talking about Peninnah. And not only that, she responded graciously to Eli the priest. How would you respond if I called you a drunk, mistook your actions? What did Hannah do? Hannah said, oh no, I'm not a drunk. I'm not a worthless woman. She responded graciously to Eli. Even said to Eli, Eli, I'm your maidservant. I'm your slave girl. 
spoke to him respectfully and in a godly, gracious way. And that's one of the things we can learn about Hannah, that Hannah responded graciously in her personal relationships. A second thing, a godly mother values motherhood. And when I say that, it's more than just simply saying, I have children. There are individuals who can say, I got children. But that doesn't mean that that person is a godly mother or a godly father just because that person has children. I know certain athletes, certain entertainers got tons of kids. But but that's not what the issue here with Hannah. Hannah valued motherhood. She realized that children were a gift from God. She wanted to raise a godly offspring for God. In the words of Malachi 2.5, 2.15, a seed for God, children who love and worship God. That was her passion of her heart. She didn't just want a child for a child's sake. She wanted a child so that the seed of God could be advanced, so to speak. So that there could be one more person who's living his life or her life for God. That's when you value motherhood. You don't value motherhood just because you have a child. You don't value motherhood just because you're buddies with your child. You value motherhood when you want your child to live for God. That's what Hannah wants. Hannah prayed. But she prayed, Lord, give me a son. And if you give me a son, I'll devote him to you for lifelong service. I give you a son, and he'll be a Nazarite. He'll abstain from wine. He'll abstain from getting his hair cut. He'll abstain from touching bodies that are defiled. He, she wanted a son to follow after God. That's when you value motherhood. And that's what Hannah did. A godly mother is a woman of prayer. And I'll, I'll just encourage you, read verses 9 through 18 and think about Hannah. And we learn from her, you pray no matter what the circumstances. Not only when the times are good, but when the times are bad. You pray when your child is rebellious. You pray when your child is living for the Lord. Praying is what Hannah did. And most of all, she teaches us, take your problems to the Lord. Take your problems to the Lord. A godly mother, as we see in Hannah, is a devoted servant. I know we didn't actually read the verse in detail, but in verse 11, three times, she says to God, God I'm your servant, your maid servant. As she looked at her relationship to God, she said, God, I'm a slave girl, but I'm not a slave girl of my husband. I'm not a slave girl of somebody else. I'm your slave girl. I'm your slave servant. I'm sold out to you, God. I'm devoted to you. And then the last thing we see is that a godly mother gives her children to the Lord. I realize that when it comes to verses 24 to 28, there's a practice in some churches where they have dedication of children. Done it here. I've done it several times. Done it with some of your children. Done it with friends who have children. Where they want their children or their child dedicated to the Lord. And so we call it child dedication, and many times it's based upon this passage of what Hannah did. But may I say there's something more important than child dedication, and that is parent dedication. Parents, you need to dedicate yourself to the Lord before you talk about dedicating your child to the Lord. That's the proper order. I'm amazed, and even some of the ones that I've dedicated, they want their child dedicated to the Lord, but they don't want to be dedicated to the Lord. They don't want to be sold out to the Lord. Hannah was sold out to the Lord. And so when she asked for a son, she vowed 
that this son would be given back to the Lord. And basically what she's saying, the lesson for us, is that a godly mother says to the Lord, my child is yours. Did you hear that? When I dedicate my son or my daughter to the Lord, I'm saying to the Lord, Lord, my child, the, the, the one that came from my wife's womb, my child is yours, belongs to you. I, I recognize that he or she is a gift from God, but I give my gift back to the Lord because he is deserving and worthy of it. And I'm not saying you got to do it exactly like Hannah. But in your heart, you should be doing it. You should make it clear to your child and to others that my child belongs to the Lord. And Hannah, in light of her vow, made this great sacrifice, went up to Shiloh, with the family, made this great sacrifice and gave her three-year-old son to Eli and says, he's yours. The, the one I asked for, the one I prayed for in the anguish of my soul, and sometimes even when I was bitter, Lord, you have given me a son, the, the one that I've weaned, the one that sat on my lap, the one that I've come to cherish and love, Lord, he is yours. He's yours. And so she left Samuel at the tabernacle with Eli. And the text doesn't say she started weeping and crying. Doesn't say she held on to Samuel, wouldn't, wouldn't let him go. The text says she broke out in praise. Read, read her song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. She talks about there's none like God. She, she recognized that the best thing for her son was to be available to the Lord for service. And that's a challenge to us as parents. We want our child to get that good-paying job. We want our child to get that education. We want our child to go to that good school. And, and if that's our desires and our ultimate desire, our number one desire is not that our child is the Lord's and he can do with my child whatever he pleases, whether that's being a missionary, whether that's serving people on the street or whatever the case might be, Hannah's dedication of the Lord was not a ceremony. It was an act of her heart saying, God, my child is yours. What you have given me, I give back to you. So that's the significance of Hannah as a godly mother. A godly mother is gracious in her personal relationships. A godly mother values motherhood because she wants to raise children for the Lord. She doesn't just want children as a tax write-off. Doesn't want just children because the marriage relationship is bad. So she's going to pour herself into that. She wants children to raise for the Lord. A godly mother is a woman of prayer. Particularly, she takes her burdens, her cares to the Lord. A godly mother is dedicated to the Lord and devoted to the Lord. And also a godly mother gives her children to the Lord. Doesn't mean that they will follow the Lord. But it does mean that's your desire for them, that you want your children not to be great athletes, not to be great educators, not to be this and that, but your number one desire ought to be for your children 
that they will live a life devoted to the Lord in abstaining and restraining themselves from the things that will hurt them and hurt them. Mothers, under the sound of my voice, my prayer is that you'll be encouraged by the example of Hannah on how to be a godly mother. May God increase your tribe and enable you to be a woman, a mother in particular, after his own heart. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the examples in Scripture of godly mothers. We realize that they're all over the place, but yet being a godly mother is not common. Father, I pray that you would use your word in this message in the lives of the mothers under the sound of my voice. Help them to be godly. Help them to follow the example and the pattern of Hannah. May they be gracious in their personal relationships. May they truly value motherhood and want to raise children that follow you. May they be women of prayer. May they be devoted to you. May each of these mothers be able to say, God, I'm your servant. I belong to you. I'm committed to you. And Father, may they also dedicate their children to you. And some, Father, might not have done that. And it's never too late, Father, for that to happen. Help each mother here and really help each parent here to give their child, and it might even be an adult child, to you for your glory, for your honor, for your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.